seated. Let's uh, turn our hearts together to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful each day you give us to gather together uh, and worship you with the breath of life given first physically, but then uh, ultimately spiritually by the presence of your spirit that breathes life into us. We pray as we turn to your word this day, you uh, might encourage that life to be more faithful to you, uh, more true to your gospel, uh, more passionate to live in light of what you've written. Lord, we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Last week, Phil Thorne, our interim senior minister, shared with us what I thought was a very powerful and heartfelt message concerning the ministry of the book of Psalms throughout the history of God's people. He highlighted the difference the book has made in the lives of those who are seeking intimacy with God through good and bad times. It really was a great word. If you didn't have a chance to hear it last week, I'd encourage you to listen to it this coming week because Phil used that as a launching pad for a fall series uh, in the book of Psalms that we are now in. So this morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 1 together, uh, the first psalm. And I think uh, one of the most interesting questions about the first psalm is why is it the first psalm? Uh, there are 150 psalms uh, in our book of psalms, and it, presumably any one of them could have been the first one. Uh, we know they weren't put in order from uh, you know, the earliest to the last written. It, that's not the case. And so uh, those who assembled the psalms uh, chose the psalm on purpose to be the first psalm. So why might that be the case? There are a few observations we can make about this psalm compared uh, to the other psalms that follow it. One of the things that Phil pointed out last week is that when you read the psalms, uh, they're mostly in first and second person language, a language of words like I and you and me. They, they directly address the Lord with the language of relationship. Uh, so for instance, uh, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's Psalm 13. You can hear the, the you's and me's in it. Or Psalm 145 begins, I will exalt your name, my God. I will praise your name forever. So it's mostly in first person and second person language. But if you look at Psalm 1, that's not the case. We find no first or second person language. Uh, it's completely written in the third person. Blessed is he who does not walk in step with the wicked. It starts off. Uh, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Verse 3 says. The entire psalm, uh, psalm reads more like a proverb or instruction or a teaching rather than a personal plea or prayer to the Lord. And as it turns out, if you look at Psalm 2, it's also written in a tone of third-person exhortation as well. Uh, it does in one place say, you know, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord in Psalm 2, but the decree isn't being declared to the Lord, it's actually being declared to other kings 
if you read the context of Psalm 2. So both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together are in a third-person language. But when you get to Psalm 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and beyond, it it turns to to the second and first-person language. Lord, how many are my foes, Psalm 3 says. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God, uh, Psalm 4 says, and, and so on. And again, that's not the case with Psalm 1 and 2. You'll notice another difference with Psalm 1 and 2 compared to the other Psalms which follow. Psalm 3 and almost all the other Psalms that follow Psalm 3 in the first section of Psalms from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41, they they all have something called superscriptions. Uh, or notations, identifying the author sometimes, uh, making musical notations, uh, sometimes even giving the setting from which you're to understand this psalm. For instance, Psalm 3 is introduced as a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. But if again, if you look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, neither of them identify an author, give any mention about music, uh, and, and they don't offer any kind of setting from which to interpret what's written. So they're really presented as a historical instruction. And one other unique observation about the first two Psalms, the first Psalm, Psalm 1, starts out with a blessed statement. Uh, and Psalm 2, the very end of Psalm 2, it ends with a blessed statement. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. These blessed statements start and end these two psalms. They they serve as a bookend to draw these two psalms together. And all that is to say is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 stand apart. They're a little different in nature than the Psalms that follow them. And they're drawn together into a whole unit. Why? Well, they introduce the Psalms. They are like an introductory gateway to this book. These two Psalms are meant to be a prism through which you you understand and see the rest of of the Psalms that follow. They're how we're supposed to frame our understanding of the Psalms which follow. And that raises actually an interesting uh, question and point. Uh, Is there a broad purpose to the book of Psalms? And I, I would say yes. There's a thread which ties the book of Psalms together and it's in Psalm 1 and 2 that these themes are, are presented and, and uh, again, shape the rest of the Psalms that follow. Phil shared last week, uh, you know, the Psalms, it really is a songbook. It's a prayer book of God's people from ancient days that was used individually in corporate worship. And so you, you can open up the Psalms, choose a Psalm, and read that Psalm on its own merit with the content that is within side of, of that particular uh, psalm. Uh, each psalm in and of itself has a unique purpose to draw us into relationship with and worship of the Lord through its content. And that's, as we go on studying the book of Psalms, that's what we're going to do. We're going to choose one psalm and study what it says 
uh, in that particular psalm and apply it to our own lives. But the book as a whole has an underlying purpose. It has a trajectory as well. And it's actually a lot like our own hymnal. Uh, in, in fact, grab your own hymnal for a second and just open up to any hymn. Just open up, find a hymn. And, you know, you, you can look at that particular hymn, the words in that hymn, we could sing it and we would find great delight in worshiping the Lord and be edified by the content within that particular hymn. But if you look at the top of the page, the very, very top of the page, you'll see some little words. Uh, on the left side, you'll see a category. And on the right page, you'll see little words right next to that category. And that's actually a subcategory. Uh, and, and so this hymn is within that category and subcategory, the hymns on that page. So if you actually go to the front Look at the table of contents in the front of your hymnal. You'll actually see those categories and subcategories laid out. Uh, so from hymn one all the way through hymn 153, that's all in the category of God. It's the nature of God. Starting at 154, it moves on to the person and work of Christ. Uh, Holy Spirit section is 329 to 341. Then it goes on to the church and Christian living and, and so on uh, and so forth. What you see here is that the folks who assembled this hymn book had a purpose behind it. And they, they did so in a systematic theological approach so that as you sing through these hymns, you would get a full picture of what it means to worship the living God through Christ and the application of that in our lives. It's a systematic approach to, uh, to understanding God through music. It, it is a collection of songs and prayers to draw us into worship of God, but it had this, this trajectory, this purpose for spiritual edification behind it. In the book of Psalms, is no less purposeful in its overall message. It's not organized like our hymn book is by systematic theology, uh, but there is, it's, I've already pointed out, there is clear organization to it, isn't there? Last, last week, Phil said, the book of Psalms is actually broken down into five books. Uh, and it is. If you go to Psalm 40 and 41, you'll see a statement there, book two, transitioning from book one to book two. Uh, it's broken into five books. If you go to the end, uh, you'll see Psalm 146 to 150. Those psalms have a, a very similar structure uh, using the word hallelujah. And they serve as this crescendo of praise, as a conclusion to the book. And as I've already said, Psalm 1 and 2 uh, are, serve as an introduction to, to this book. And I don't have time to, this morning to, to go and describe more of the structure of the book of Psalms, but suffice it to say, it is. It's a structured book with thought behind the way in which that structure would be put together. If you have the opportunity, go onto YouTube, type in Bible Project, and type in Psalms. Uh, and a, a wonderful three-minute video will come up that will lay out a, a great attempt to describe the shape and the structure of the whole book. 
So again, all that is to say is that there is a message, an overall direction to the book. And I think it's particularly shaped by uh, the, the history in which this book, this time period, the people, what, what they were going through uh, when this book came together by the superintendency of God's spirit. The final structure of the book of Psalms, do you know when it actually came together? Uh, it came together after the Babylonian exile. God's people uh, were unfaithful to God's covenant. And so God removed Israel from the plant promised land, put them in Babylon. Then they come back into the land. Uh, God begins to unfold promises to them that are, are fulfilled. And, and it's during this time period, sometime between 200 B.C., uh, up to five, so let me say it the other way, from like 500 BC to 200 BC. That time period, as they're coming back into the land, that's when the book of Psalms comes together into a whole unit. Again, superintended by the Holy Spirit, but uh, uh, with the experience that these, these, these editors, these folks who are pulling the Psalms together into a unit uh, had, and that's important because, well, everything that just happened to them in Babylon, it was like, it was raw. It, the suffering that Israel and Judah endured in the Babylonian exile, it was still all palpable. It was fresh on their mind. But here they are coming back into the promised land. So they're filled with hope and expectation uh, that as they return, there's a new season of life in the promised land with the expectation that God would keep his covenant with his people and raise up the Messiah and establish a messianic eternal kingdom. They had suffered because of their unfaithfulness for the Lord's covenant, uh, to the Lord's covenant. They weren't faithful to it. But now here they were, restored to the land, rebuilding the temple for worship. And they longed for the promised Messiah from the, from the line of David to come. And that is where Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 come to life. Together, these Psalms, they're a statement of covenant renewal for the people of God with this past history in mind and the future hope that lay before them. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. That's a reference to the Mosaic covenant. It's an implicit renewal statement. If you are faithful, you will be blessed. But do you know where those words are actually come from? They, they echo another context and situation. They echo Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Joshua and Israel, they're standing on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And here's what the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua 1.8. He says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate, it, uh, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. 
That's the same thing we read in Psalm 1. Uh, the Lord goes on, then you will be prosperous and successful. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wereever you go. Psalm 1-2 is a restatement of the promise given to Joshua. I mean, can't you imagine them on the, again, on the cusp of the promised land, returning from the exile, rebuilding the temple, and all of the promises that were given to Joshua, they're now recounting as their own. If we remain faithful, God will be with us. We need but not be afraid. Psalm 1 continues on in verse 3. It says, that person or he is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season. You know where that statement comes from? It comes from Jeremiah uh, chapter 32. When the Lord promises to restore his people to the promised land after the exile and establish a new covenant with his people. Here, let me read it to you. The Lord says to Jeremiah, it's a summation of it. He says, I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will rejoice in doing them good. And, and here it is. Listen, he says, I will assuredly plant them in this land with all of my heart and soul. Psalm 1-3 is just a restatement of the promised, uh, promises given to Jeremiah. And the main theme of, of uh, Psalm 2, which we don't have time to look at closely today, is the triumph of the Messianic king over the nations. Verse 7 of Psalm 2 says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree... He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And you probably know what that is. That's a restatement of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, a promise given to David by the Lord. Which promised the establishment of an everlasting covenant. And an everlasting kingdom ruled one day by a messianic descendant of David. And so here's the point. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they serve as an introduction to the Psalms. They remind God's people that if they are faithful to him and live by his word, he will deliver on all of his covenant promises. The whole book of Psalms is a book of covenant renewal infused with the assurance and the hope that God's kingdom is coming, that he will be victorious in the end. And so will you, you, if you're faithful to him. That's why the book of Psalms is divided into five books. Because it mirrors the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, in which God established his covenant with his people through Moses. It looks just like it. Psalms is an active renewal of that covenant. Reading the Psalms, believing the Psalms, singing the Psalms, living in the hope 
of the Psalms is an ongoing act of covenant renewal with the Lord. That's what the Psalms are about. So let me make three points of application about this introductory chapter. You know, I'm using the language, you know, first I'm using the language of covenant and covenant renewal, and that's just fancy language for relationship and relationship renewal. Joshua 1 and Jeremiah 32, in both of them, God says, look, I'm going to be your people. I'm going to be with you. Every time you open up the book of Psalms and read a psalm, you are opening up your heart and your relationship with God. You're reestablishing your relationship with God. You're evoking his presence at times, clinging to him through hard times, celebrating with him when your life is flourishing in his presence. That's the introductory message of Psalm 1. Verse 2 says that blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That's what the book of Psalms is. It's, a, it's meditation after meditation after meditation on the goodness and provision and protection of the Lord in our lives. The Lord God is going to be with you. So you don't have to fear, as he told Joshua. The Psalms are a gateway to reestablish your relationship. And, and I know some of you have come in here today feeling distant from the Lord. Feeling like, I, I'm just, I, I don't know you, God. And I, I, I want to reestablish this relationship with you. Turn to the book of Psalms. Use those words to cry out to him, to establish and reestablish a relationship with him. The second thing I want to say uh, is that after Psalm 1 and 2, it all just goes downhill. I mean, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, Psalm, it, it, it just it turns really hard and dark. Fast. Words like this, Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? Lord, uh, Psalm 4, give relief to my distress. Psalm 5, hear my cries for help. Psalm 6, I am worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Reading through the Psalms is like this emotional roller coaster uh, that often takes a deep dive into fear and envy and anguish and despair. And that should sound very familiar to you because that's the life you're living. One moment, it seems like you got it all together and things are well, and bam. It all falls apart and life looks like a disaster. Reading through Psalms is meant to evoke that reality in your life, but Psalm 1 and 2 are supposed to be the anchor 
that draws you back every single time to remind you that God will be faithful to you. You maintain your faithfulness to him. He will maintain his faithfulness to you. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 reminds us. All of life, whatever trouble that may have come upon you, it all should be shaped through the lenses of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Final point of application is this. The Jewish leaders in the days following the exile from Babylon who put the final touches on the book of Psalms were infused with hope an expectation that God would soon bring about his covenant promises, that he would establish a messianic king led by a descendant of David. The book of Psalms, it's just pregnant with this expectation. So it shouldn't surprise you that when we turn to the New Testament, guess what book of the Bible the New Testament authors and endorse, uh, use the most to endorse messianic claims about Jesus. It's not Deuteronomy, it's not Jeremiah, it's not Isaiah. It's the book of Psalms. Over 70 references are made in the New Testament referring to the Psalms to help explain to its readers that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people. When the resurrected Jesus spoke to his disciples on the road to Emmaus to explain what had happened, Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and then he said, in the Psalms. The only means by which God's people would be planted like a great flourishing tree by living water was Christ. The expected Messiah, that messianic king of Psalm 2, was Christ. That water that was panted for like a deer panting for water in Psalm 42 was Christ. The answer to every cry of desperation and of anguish and of crisis and of doubt in the book of Psalms is Christ. Christ is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Christ is the rock of all of ages and the rock of salvation of Psalm 28. Who is the king of glory? Psalm 24 asks. It is Christ Jesus the gospels proclaim. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David pleads in Psalm 51 when he is considering his sin. Who is the only one who can restore in such wondrous ways? It is Christ crucified and it is Christ resurrected, risen to life. 
to free you of that sin and to give you eternal life. Covenant renewal introduced in Psalm 1 and 2 the promise of a coming king and a kingdom, the expectation of the fulfillment of every longing from the psalm is Christ. In the deep yearning of your own heart, your desire to be free, your desire for justice, your longing for forgiveness, your need for protection and provision, your yearning for intimacy, your hope for the future, it's all found in Christ. And some of you today, you've come in, you know you have these longings, these needs, these desires unfulfilled in your life, and you've been looking for a place or a person to fulfill them. You can look in the book of Psalms, but the book of Psalms is going to point you to Jesus Christ. He is the answer. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who delights in the law of the Lord. And who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Which yield its fruit in season. And whose leaves do not wither. Whatever he or she does prospers. That's you with Christ. May it be so in your life. Amen.